Good morning, church. Those joining us online and in the room, we are on the other side of Easter. And hopefully Easter has enough weight to it that it hangs over us for the next year and not just a few days. Uh, it's only if that's true that we can make sense of the passage that was just read for us. We are back in the book of Colossians. As you know, we, we began this journey a couple of months ago, and then we took a little hiatus in order to be able to, to mark and fully enter into the Easter season. But we're back now, Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to look at something that, that all of you, whether in this season of your life, but certainly at some season of your life, all of you are already experiencing. Whether you're a parent or you're a single, married, high school student, you know about today's topic. We're going to talk about purposeful suffering. What a downer for the week after Easter, right? But, but if Easter is going to be Easter anywhere, it has to be able to confront the harsh reality of life in all of its messiness, in all of its bitterness, in all of its pain. Because as we said last, uh, last week, as we, as we lifted up the good news of, of Easter, the resurrection promises so many things, but it doesn't promise a life absent of pain. In fact, if anything, life got riskier for the disciples after the resurrection. What it gave them was purpose, enthusiasm, hope. What it didn't give them was any sort of cheap fairy tales about living life absent of suffering. So, To be clear, though, this morning, we're going to address not suffering as it represents itself in, in all kinds of human experiences, but purposeful suffering, the suffering that we choose. Who chooses suffering, you say? Well, stay with me on this. All of us do. We choose to suffer on behalf of another. Why do we do it? How do we survive suffering without, without burning out, without becoming masochists? We don't love the pain. But still, we choose to suffer. What does that mean for us? Those are, those are heavy questions. But they're Easter questions. They have everything to do with taking the reality of the cross and the news of the resurrection and applying them to what happens Monday morning after it's all over. Let me pray and then let's dig in. Father God, God with us, God present among us, we need to hear your voice again. Our lives, they grow cold and dull and meaningless the longer we go without you. We long it for your voice to be louder than anything else in our life. And in this moment, we, we pray that you would be speaking, that you would appear to us in our thoughts, that you would be the warmth in our hearts, that you would be the challenging prompting in our lives. Make us attending to your leading, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up. Have them on your lap. Turn on your device. Turn off messages. Make sure that the alarms are silenced, all that stuff. But, but let's look at verse 24. Here's how, here's how Paul starts in this section. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Boy, that's heavy. In fact, that is... That is so heavy, that first verse, that I'm, giving to, I'm going to give it to you as a homework assignment for the week. I, I would love for you to go and do a little bit of reading and thinking and, and researching and, and see if you can figure out what Paul is getting at there. I rejoice in what I'm suffering. I mean, 
two realities that seem not to be able to exist. We know what rejoicing is, celebration. We love it. We're great at it. We're going to do it after the service. We've got cake in the hallway. Yeah, we're good at that. We know what suffering is. Nobody loves it, but we endure it. And sometimes the way that we endure it says an awful lot about the kind of people that we are and about the kind of investment God is making in us. But rejoicing and suffering living together, wow, that's confounding. But it gets even deeper. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. I mean, could there be anything possibly lacking in what Christ has already done? Let me give you just the short answer, and then I'm going to let you do the long answer for homework. The short answer is, and let's say this definitively, that Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection are sufficient for everything that has to do with salvation, for life as it's lived in God today, for life as it will be enjoyed with God throughout all eternity. That's the simple answer. But there is something to this idea about what we go through in our own lives, about how that fills us up, filled up in my flesh with what Christ began and yet now continues in us. Homework assignment. Go read that verse a few times. Read about it. Let me know what you come up with. But let's, let's read on a little bit because I, I think maybe by the end of the message, you're going to get a sense of what the scriptures are pointing to here. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul, Paul names his identity. He names his mission. He says, I'm a servant. Why? Because of the commission that God gave to me. What is it? To present to you the word of God in all of its fullness, that mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's holy people. We're on the other side of Easter. Let's unpack the mystery. So here's, here's what I'd like to do in the time that we have this morning. I want to consider three things that arise in the passage. First, how is it that Paul can talk about rejoicing and suffering in the same breath? What does it mean to rejoice in suffering? Second, how can you possibly endure, endure a life of chosen suffering without compassion, fatigue, and burnout, and just buckling under the weight of it. I mean, short of becoming a masochist, where you, you learn to, 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 to love suffering, and nobody wants to love suffering, how do you, how do you endure? And thirdly, the question that we, we always ask, having listened for God speaking through Scripture, what does it mean? What is all of this talk about, uh, about choosing suffering and enduring suffering? What does it mean for us when we get up tomorrow morning? and every day that follows. Why choose suffering? Let's, let's start there. Why does Paul choose suffering? Why does he rejoice in suffering? We know from the very beginning of the story of Paul that when he was called to follow Jesus, Jesus didn't mince words with him. Jesus tells him very explicitly that I'm calling you, and when you follow me, you will suffer for my name. Imagine putting that out on her sign. Come join us and suffer for his name. Let's see how that plays as a marketing tactic. Paul knew that he would suffer for the glory of Jesus, for the mission, for the purposes of Jesus. And we know that was true. Among the experiences of his life, all of which are recorded in the New Testament, we know that Paul was beaten, 
He was imprisoned multiple times. He was stoned and somehow survived. He was abused physically and often verbally. He was falsely accused. He was betrayed by his fellow Christians. In 2 Corinthians 11, this is what Paul says. He says, I have labored. This is verse 27. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep whatsoever. I've known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Why did Paul choose suffering? There's only one reason, only one thing that could account for it. He chooses suffering because he loves the church. He loves Jesus and he loves this group of people that bear his name. That might sound simplistic. It might even sound trite. But Paul loved Jesus, and that meant that he loved the church of Jesus. And it was like this burden. He says he feels it like a pressure inside of him, building up in his life. In verse 24, remember that controversial verse? It says he's suffering for the sake of Christ's body, that this, this affliction, it's, it's coming up in him. In verse 25, he says that he's made himself a servant of this church. Paul chooses suffering, and he chooses a a suffering mixed with rejoicing because he knows that this this message that Jesus remarkably has given to him, not just that it changed his life, but it will change the life of everyone who encounters it. He's been given a message. It's a message about their purpose. If you go back to where we started a few weeks ago, Colossians 1.16 says, we were created with purpose, by design. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. That's what Colossians says. Glorious purpose. It's a message about our worth. Colossians 1.22, Paul says that God, the God of the whole universe, has pursued you and us. Pursued you and died for you and made you his very own and freed you from the chaos that sin inflicts on our lives. So it's a message of purpose and worth. It's also a message about identity. Verse 27, Christ in you. Christ in you. You're wondering what your identity is? Who are you? Has everything to do with Christ in you. It's not just about identity, it's about hope. Verse 27 goes on, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, the now and future salvation of God and God's kingdom. It's important to recognize here in this context, Paul is not speaking to you and me as individuals. Verse 27 is a plural, which means we really, we ought to translate it Christ in y'all. It's Christ in y'all, you know, the, the, the New Texas translation of the Bible. He's speaking specifically to this gathered group of, of, of Jesus followers, a, a group of disciples who've decided we are reordering our lives around the priority of Jesus. That's MCBC, by the way. What is MCBC? What does it mean to say we're a church? We are a community of people reordering our lives around the priority of Jesus. We tend to think sometimes of the churches, this is the place that we go to. And when we go to that place, there are things that happen. We sing some songs and you sing great. We did great this morning. And, you know, and we, and we pray together and Tim prayed great. And we, and we listen to a message, maybe inspirational, probably not today, but, and then we go into our week and we go get them for God. 
you know, and that's the church. But, but the core understanding of the church as we get it in God's word transcends this idea of individualism that church is something that I, me, as a person, I go to and stuff that I, me, that, that I do. It's not just gathering and consuming a few religious goods and services. No, Paul says the church is the body of Christ. This interdependent group of Jesus followers working together to do what? Rejecting selfishness, serving others, committed to being agents and instruments that that somehow express the love of Christ in the world. Have a look at verse 28. Why is Paul committing so much to all of this? Why is he so willing to suffer? Here's the end goal. So that the church might become fully mature in Christ. Do you see that verse? Maybe you have a translation that said made perfect. Fully mature in Christ. So that the church can be in and out an expression of its purpose in the world. So that together we get to be exactly who God made us to be. And that's why Paul rejoices. Again, he's, he's not somebody who who rejoices in suffering, but he's not going to wallow in it either because he knows that there's purpose behind it. He is suffering for the sake of Christ and Christ's body, the church. And how does Paul do it? Without giving up. Without burning out. Because we know, I mean, our world has been through just travail after travail over the past few years, and we know one of the signs of that, all that suffering, is burnout. How many of you are operating in spheres in the world, vocationally, where you're seeing huge levels of burnout? People just are buckling under the weight of all of it. How is it that Paul has been able to survive? He's not a masochist, so he doesn't love it, but he chooses it. And now sometimes we think of Paul as he's the super Christian. He's like, he's the Avengers of Christians, right? He's got all of these powers. But, but when you actually read the things that he writes, You see that he's just a man. He's honest. He has weaknesses. Yeah, he has strengths, but he has times when he's messed up. He has regrets and other baggage, everything that comes with being human. But he tells us his secret. Hey, Paul, what is it? What's the secret sauce? It's the power of Christ in him. Listen to verse 29. Beautiful. Colossians 1.29. In fact, is there a way of getting that on the screen? Colossians 1.29? Perfect. To this end, Paul says, I strenuously contend with all of the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. Jesus talked about this with his earliest band of followers. He told them, Acts chapter 1, he said, you are going to receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power so that you can live this out. You're going to be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And that's you. And that's why you're here. When the Holy Spirit comes, you receive power to live out your purpose. You receive power to be on mission. You receive power to do the work of love. And for the sake of others, you receive power and you're going to need it. Because the only way that I know how to love in, in this world is to choose to embrace suffering. There is no love that doesn't know suffering on behalf of the other person. 
To choose love is to choose suffering. But how do you endure? Hmm. It has everything to do with, with what Jesus promised. But, but what did he promise? The Holy Spirit. What, what does that mean? Remember, the Holy Spirit is not some invisible force field that surrounds us. That's Star Wars. It's not some rippling energy field out there. You know, some form of divine electromagnetic energy. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is God. It's the mystery of God with us. It's the uniqueness of the Christian faith that we believe in a God who is so full that he's able to express himself in all of these ways. God is sovereign father, architect of creation, creator of all that is. God who manifests himself in human form as Jesus, this grace-filled expression of God incarnate. And then God who lives on in the world. Not, not some nebulous force, but the very living presence of God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power of God in us, through us, around us, beneath us, in front of us, behind us. It's, it's the picture that we actually talked about in the very first week when we looked at the book of Colossians. And maybe some of you will remember this. Jesus gives this picture. He starts it in John 14, continues in 15, in John chapter 16. Uh, Jesus, when he teaches, he doesn't teach badly like I'm inclined to do and fill it up with words. No, he gives pictures. He wants to give them a picture. What does this look like to live in the power of the Holy Spirit? And so he takes them into the garden. He says, this is the garden of God. God's the gardener. Look at this vine. Look how robust and healthy and strong it is. I have knit you into the vine. You are the branches that are grafted to the vine. What is the power of the Holy Spirit? It's what arises when the very life and nourishment of who you are is rooted and grounded in the vine, in Jesus himself. And Jesus goes on to say in that passage, John 15, verse 5, telling words. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Now, we know there's lots of things that we can do apart from Jesus. And lots of people do lots of things apart from Jesus. But the things that, that Jesus was teaching about, the things that were so important to Paul, for which he was willing to suffer and even die, these things, in order to live the, the with God life, to endure suffering for the sake of love, these things only happen when you stay attached to the vine, hidden in Christ, the Bible says. The energy to persevere in the face of purposeful suffering comes only when Jesus has captured us and holds us. Does that make sense? It's the energy of Christ that works so powerfully in Paul and says, with that energy, he contends and he exerts and there's effort, but it's undertaken always in partnership with God. What does that mean for us? I mean, for us here, tucked away in this little church and in the backwoods of Mississauga. (laughs) What does it mean for us as we follow Jesus? Well, uh, I'm going to suggest it means these three things. It, It means that there is no church and there is no Christian life. There is nothing about what we understand Christianity to be apart from this union with Christ. Without the partnership, the whole thing falls apart. 
And yet, too many people who aspire to be followers of Jesus are trying to do it without him. And too many churches that have Jesus on their sign are relying on everything except him to try and survive. It means partnership. Secondly, it means love. And thirdly, it means prayer. If we don't love, then suffering on behalf of another person, maybe it's pious, maybe it's prideful, maybe it's self-serving, but it's not love. And if we don't pray, I mean, church, if we don't pray... There is no partnership with God, and we will only ever be contending with our own power. And so we'll be a church running on the energy of self-sufficiency, and we will do nothing. And maybe we keep the lights on and some people show up, but, but the things that, that Paul was willing to suffer for, the things that Jesus bled and died for, none of those things are going to happen here without, without prayer. To, to, to live in the way of Jesus, to love others in the way of Jesus, it means love. And love means vulnerability, and vulnerability means suffering. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. Leave it to Lewis to put it in a way that you won't forget. Lewis said, to love, to love is to be vulnerable. If you love anything, it means that your heart could be wronged or possibly even broken. If you want to make sure that you keep your heart intact, Lewis said, then you must be sure to give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around the hobbies and the little luxuries and avoid, and avoid all entangled entanglements. And lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your own selfishness. There is no love without suffering. You show me someone who is suffering for the sake of another. And you will see a picture of love at work. Like Paul, we, we aspire to live that out. Again, it, it's not something we'd plaster on a sign, the suffering church. But, but there's a reality there that we know. Just a little tangent. There is suffering that happens to us that we don't choose. And that's a heavy question. That question has been around since, probably since human beings could formulate questions. Why do awful things keep happening in our world? We don't choose them. We don't seek them. Maybe we're not even complicit in them happening, but they happen just the same. That's a key question, but... That's not the question we're wrestling with today. We've wrestled with one, that one before, and we will again, and there are good answers to it. But, but this is the suffering that we choose. We choose it for the sake of another. Paul chose suffering for the sake of his love for Jesus and the church of Jesus. What might that look like? Well, for one thing, and, and let's be clear about this, it doesn't mean suffering under something. It means suffering for something. Love does not suffer under abuse and anger and control and jealousy, fear, manipulation, whatever it is. That's not love. Love chooses to suffer for the good of another person or the good of a group of people or the good of an organization. Put simply, 
love is the embodiment of goodness. Love is embodied goodness. It's why scripture can say that God is love. Not just that God loves, but that he is love. Because love is embodied goodness. So what does it look like? Well, here's some things that I was thinking about just through the course of the week. What does love look like? Chosen suffering. How about the chosen suffering of a parent who sacrifices sleep night after night after night in order to attend to the feeding and health of an infant child? That's purposeful suffering, isn't it? Any of you who've raised children, you know there's suffering there. We don't call it that because we love our kids. But we suffer for our kids. And they suffer through us. How about this? How about the chosen suffering of a co-worker who is willing to set aside and sacrifice their position, their entitlement, their power in order to raise up somebody else and empower them? How about the chosen suffering of a student who is willing to walk all the way across the cafeteria to the other side to sit with that one kid, and you know the one because they're always there, who is bullied and set aside and nobody is going near them, but you're going to go and you'll suffer for it but you're going to do it out of love. How about the single person putting it out there and risking it, initiating friendship again, having been hurt so many times? How about the single parent who continues to be faithful to their kids, even though they're utterly exhausted? Or the boss who says, listen, I'm going to take a pay cut because it means being able to keep my staff and it means providing for their families. Or the grandparent who says, I'm going to listen to my grandchild in distress. I'm just going to listen before I lecture or try and fix it. How about chosen suffering that says, I'm sorry, and it's forgiven, and I'm not bringing it up again. There's always suffering involved in forgiveness because you are setting aside something that, that in you, you really want to see, whether it's retribution or, or or, or, or some resolution that just puts a cap on it for you, but you set it aside and you forgive. Chosen suffering is putting a dream on hold in order to care for a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend. And I know there's a whole bunch of you here at MCBC that have had to make exactly that choice. Paul suffered for these churches. Many of you have suffered for for this little church, for MCBC. What does that look like? It's the small group that showed up every day at the hospital until his last day. It's those student ministry volunteers who give up evenings and weekends and weeks at a time in order to ensure that our young people know how prized they are and how important they are and how much we desire to see their gifts and leadership released and used and how much we want to provide a safe place for them to wrestle with and ask questions and and consider what faith means for them. It's that group that gets here at 7 o'clock in the morning on Sundays. Yes, 7 o'clock. To make sure the doors are open and the heat's on or the AC's on. And the chairs are set, and the cameras are ready, and the sound checks are done, and the cake is cut. And yeah, there's cake, did I mention that? And all of that. And then there's a group that 
I don't do this a lot, but I hope you'll allow me to do it, to do it today. I need to boast about a group of people who have chosen to suffer for this church because of the way that they love Jesus and because of the way that they love us. And that's our staff and those who have been put forward into positions of leadership, like elders and, and deacons. We have an amazing team of workers here. And, and you have to know, you know, the, the great resignation that has hit churches all across our country and across the nations, the great exodus of people. It has been really, really hard to serve in the church over the past three years. Nobody goes into ministry thinking, man, I want to pastor people on a Zoom call. That's the fizz. <laughs> I'd really like to do this all online. That's just so much easier. <laughs> hey, but during this season, here's what I've seen our leaders do. From the very beginning, before anybody knew what COVID was, nobody had any answers. We're just trying to figure it out. They said, in the absence of answers, we're going to commit ourselves to pray. And so they met every week, a couple of hours to pray. And they did that for six months. And after that, they continued to meet every month. And even as the answers came and the plans evolved, they started first with prayer. And they were relentless in prayer. They continued to visit hospitals. They figured out ways to do weddings and funerals when it felt impossible to do them. They sat with parents who lost a child and spouses who lost a lifelong companion. They sat and had a cup of coffee, sipped through a straw underneath a mask with a woman contemplating divorce or a man celebrating his first week of sobriety. And they have graciously absorbed criticism, and there's been a lot. Some of it has been fair, and some of it has been not so fair. But they prayed, and they showed up, and they sacrificed, and they suffered. And they worked so hard behind the scenes so that we would never be closed. And in love and with tenacity, they made it possible for kids and students and adults to come into this relationship with Jesus when, has there ever been a time when the world needed him more? And you know what happened? We baptized more people in the past two years than we've ever baptized in the history of the church during COVID. How crazy is that? We have a team who persevered through a lot of stuff because they love Jesus and they're willing to suffer and do what it takes because of that. And they bear the weights of it. I mean, physically, I see them. They're run down. Emotionally, they, they're exhausted, but they're still, they're doing it based not on their own physical strength or their own emotional rigidity. They're based on the power of God working through them. And there is a power there. Boy, it's relentless. And it's so good. Paul chose to suffer for the church, and that kind of suffering, it, it absolutely depends on an ongoing, interactive conversation with God. It requires prayer. If we choose suffering without talking it over with God first, well, you run the risk of choosing the wrong suffering. And sure, we can do that. We can suffer for the wrong reasons in the wrong places, for the wrong causes. We can do it in ways that are fueled by legalism or, or fueled by pride or guilt or shame. 
But suffering that, that is born in a prayerful conversation with God, that is fueled by the energy of the Holy Spirit working within us, that's something altogether different. By the way, by the way, I think that's how Jesus came to understand suffering in his own life. Jesus wasn't a masochist. He didn't suffer because there was some dark little part of his psyche that enjoyed suffering. No, just the opposite. Jesus' suffering began at the very beginning of his journey when he came to live among us, a human being, among human beings. Can you imagine the limits that God is placing on himself to do that? Limited now to a particular region of the world and not very big. Limited to the confines of time and space. Limited to human weakness, the need for food and sleep. And again, the the boundaries of time. So how does Jesus figure out what to say yes to and what to say no to? How does he know what areas of suffering to choose? Well, he prayed. Repeatedly, constantly, consistently. In the Gospel of John, you hear Jesus saying things again and again, like, I only do the things that God tells me I should do. I only say the things that the Father tells me to say. It's why Jesus makes a point of disappearing. Notice the number of times in in the Bible where Jesus does something great and then he's gone. And the disciples are, hey, where'd he go? (laughs) Where is he? He's in solitude. He's in prayer. Enjoying that interactive conversation with the Father, getting it right. It's why on the very last night of his life, in the most poignant moments of the story of of Holy Week and Good Friday, you find him on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the ultimate act of sacrificial love. You talk about purposeful suffering, knowing what's ahead, and listen to what he prays. Abba, Father. I mean, the most intimate language that he has for God. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this suffering from me. I'm glad that Jesus prayed that way because it kind of means it's okay for you and I to pray that way. God, if it's possible, would you take this from me? But hear the courage in Jesus' final phrase. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Purposeful suffering. And of course, we know what God's answer was. No, indeed, this is the suffering that I have for you, for the sake of the world. And the book of Hebrews, just if you, if you want to flip it, this is a great verse, Hebrews 12, verse 2. It gives us a little backward glance into that moment in the life of Jesus. It describes that moment saying, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. So we can pray like Jesus. Father, what is it that you want me to do for the sake of another? For my neighbor, for this estranged family member, for this coworker, or student or teacher, for this church or for this person in the church who we just don't see eye to eye. What is it that you want me to do? In fact, I'm going to invite you, if you will, just to sit in prayer with this for a bit. And as we spend a few moments in prayer, I'll invite the worship team back to the stage. But as they come, I'm just going to invite you into that posture of prayer. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. Without this conversation, we will never know whether we've chosen well and we will never have the power to sustain our choices. God, what do you want me to do? Jesus, we want to be like you. We want our lives and our relationships to sparkle with the same grace and love and generosity and sacrifice of Jesus. We, we've listened in on the life of Paul this morning. We, we listen in again to his words. In your relationships with one another, Paul said, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus? who being in very nature God, never considered his equality with God something to be grasped, held tightly for his own advantage. Rather, he chose the way of purposeful suffering. Paul says he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, but not just that. Paul goes on. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, it's our prayer to you today. Or what do you want us to do? For who and for what am I called to suffer? God, fill us with love to such an extent that suffering is both the inevitable but also the fully manageable embodiment of who you are. We want to be the embodiment of love in the world, the love of Christ. And we know it's only possible. And we do it in the name and in the power of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.